Welcome to the FBCLB podcast, where you'll find the preaching of Dave Delaney, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. Thanks for listening. Take your Bibles and let's go this morning to the book of Mark. Mark chapter number 14 this morning. Mark chapter 14. And I hope you have your Bible with you this morning. If you do, go with me to Mark chapter 14. If you do not, there should be one perhaps in the back of the seat in front of you. Maybe in the back of the seat behind you, you'll find a copy of God's Word. And I would encourage you to pick up that copy and follow along with us this morning. Mark chapter number 14. And we're going to pick up reading in verse number 53. Mark chapter 14. We're going to read verse number 53. And we're going to read down to verse number 65. Mark chapter 14, verse 53, down to verse 65. If you found your place and if you're willing and able, would you stand with me out of respect for the reading of the Word of God? Mark chapter 14, verse number 53. We're studying here the end of the life of Jesus. A few weeks ago, we looked at how Judas betrayed him there in the garden. We saw a week after that how Peter denied him and followed him from afar off. And we're looking now at these final few hours of Jesus' life. The story of the Gospel of Mark and really of all the Gospels as it ends is to summarize for us what happens at the crucifixion, the trial, the arrest and subsequent burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what we're getting here in chapter number 14. You're going to get one piece of the trial, and then it opens up further into next week, verse chapter 15. And what they're going to lay on Jesus is a particular charge, the charge of blasphemy. If you were to ask my sons what one of my favorite sayings to them was when they were little, I would tell them that life is not fair. How many of you have lived long enough to know that to be true? Life is not fair. However, in the case of Jesus, it's not simply that life was unfair. It's that his final hours were, in fact, unjust and illegal. And Jesus endures... Three different ecclesiastical trials, trials before a religious group. And then he endures three trials before the political group. Six total trials that Jesus goes through here at the end. And no one that Jesus stands in front of is interested in actually finding the truth. They're not concerned with gathering the facts and laying them out as they, in fact, were. Instead, they've already made up their mind. Jesus is guilty. He's deserving of death. And this is the chance we have to get rid of him. So look with me at verse number 53. Remember, the last time we left Jesus off, he was being arrested in the garden. We took a week and we looked at Peter and how Peter followed him throughout the trial. And now we're coming back and we're going to center on what is happening to Jesus. After he is in shackles, where are they taking him? And notice here, verse 53. 
And they led Jesus away to the high priest. And with him were assembled all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. Peter followed him afar off, even into the palace of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and he warmed himself by the fire. And the chief priest and all the council sought for witness against Jesus to put him to death and found none. If you mark in your Bibles, you should mark that phrase, and found none. For many bear false witness against him, but their witness agreed not together. And there arose certain and bear false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And within three days, I will build another made without hands. But neither so did their witness agree together. And the high priest stood up in the midst. And he asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But he held his peace. And he answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes and, say, and saith, What need we any further witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy, what think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. And some began to spit on him, to cover his face, to buffet him, and to say unto him, Prophesy. And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. I'll stop right there. This is Jesus' night. You'll remember they've already had the Last Supper. They've gone into the garden. They've arrested Jesus in the middle of the night. Look at chapter 15, verse 1, straightway in the morning. This is the trial that he endures in the evening under the cover of darkness. And you might ask, why? And here is why. Because men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And that is what is at play here. Evil deeds done in the dark. What you do... In the dark, when no one else is around, says much about the motives you have. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would use your word in our lives. And use the beginning of this trial of Jesus to remind us of who you are, to remind us of what you've done for us and to remind us of what you desire for and from us. 
And in Jesus' name we pray. And all the church said together, Amen. Amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. You may be wondering, well, Dave, if they're not really interested in having a fair trial for Jesus, then why bother with a trial at all? Why not make a more direct method? You'll, you'll remember in the garden they arrived with a posse of armed men. The Bible says they came with swords and with clubs. They arrested Jesus in the middle of the night. All of Jesus' friends ran and fled. They had Jesus all alone. They could have easily assassinated Jesus right then and right there. If they're not interested in a fair trial, why not just get rid of Jesus straightway? And here's why. Because if death comes by assassination, then the one who assassinated, the one who killed, would be the one who was guilty before the law, according to the Old Testament. The one who was killed, who was assassinated, who wasn't given a fair trial, would be immediately held in innocence. And they can't have that. They can't have people thinking that Jesus was, in fact, innocent, that he may be who he said he was. And so, they've decided to have this trial, this make-believe trial. So they can find him guilty by way of judicial processes. If Jesus is killed, having been declared by the law as guilty, then the priest, the one who are killing him, would be found innocent. In other words, Jesus is condemned guilty as a lawbreaker, and they stand righteous as the ones who were simply upholding the law. How many of you know that is a Perfect picture of hypocrisy right there. Pretending to be righteous while doing all of these faux and fake righteous things with evil, evil intention. It's not simply hypocrisy. It's in fact self-righteousness. They're trying to puff themselves up pretending as if they did everything they were presupposing themselves to be doing. Thinking they were righteous all along the way. So how is it that they will convince everybody to go along with their plan? Well, you'll notice there's a word used in the text. It's used seven different times. And the word is the word witness. Look with me in the verse. Look at verse number 55. You see the word? They sought for witness. Look at verse 56. They bear false witness. Look at verse 56 again. But their witness agreed not. Look at verse 57. And bear false witness against him. Look at verse 59. Neither so did their witness agree. Look down at verse number 60. So what is it which these witnesses, or what is it that these witness against thee? Skip down to verse number 63. What need we any further 
witnesses. Seven different times in nine verses, they keep speaking of these witnesses who they've paraded out in this make-believe trial in order to find Jesus guilty. So two things about witnesses. Number one, number one, write this down. A false witness will find a way to lie no matter the facts. A false witness will find a way to lie no matter the facts. So here's what has happened. They've arrested Jesus and they want to charge Jesus with blasphemy. Blasphemy was a sin that was worthy of death according to Levitical law. And so they need Jesus to be guilty of saying that he in fact was God. He was the Christ, literally the Messiah, the promised one of the Old Testament. And so the Bible says that they've put out word in search of finding any witness who would have anything against Jesus. They finally have him in court. This is their chance. Ever since Mark chapter 3, they've been searching for a reason to put Jesus to death. And this is their moment. This is the climax of all that they've been planning and preparing and, and diabolically scheming to accomplish since Mark 3. And they are not about to let Jesus go now. And so they put out word. Notice verse 55. And the chief priests and the council sought for witness against Jesus. So they put out a word. Anybody who has anything against Jesus. Anybody who has anything that they can bring up to malign his character. To defame him. To slander him. For us to use against him. Anybody have any reason? Why you might have something against Jesus. This is literally what they put. Wanted. Something against Jesus. But notice, verse 55, they sought for witness against Jesus to put him to death. And look at the end. And found none. Well, of course they found none. And do you know why they found none? Do you know why they found not one witness that had something against Jesus? Here's the answer. Because he is the sinless son of God. They cannot find any witness against Jesus because, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, he was in all points tempted like we are, yet he, speaking of Jesus, was without sin. So in order to find guilty of to find Jesus guilty of having violated the law at all, what they needed was they needed a lying witness. They needed someone who would make up a story. Because Jesus' life was a life lived not only with moral integrity, but Jesus' life was a life lived with legal integrity. He fulfilled all of the law. Every dot, every tittle, every punctuation point, Jesus fulfilled all of the law. So, how do you come up with dirt on someone who has a spotless record? 
How do you pin a crime on someone who has not done anything wrong? How do you, how do you get to the place where you can find him guilty of blasphemy? Well, they find plenty of false witnesses. Notice that's what the text is telling us. Verse 56, for many bear false witness. In other words, Mark wants you and I to know that while Jesus is about to be found guilty, while he is about to be declared guilty by a legal court, these witnesses were false. And he doesn't tell us it one time. He tells us it over and over. He tells us again, verse 56, their witnesses agreed not together. Verse 57, they bear false witness. Verse, verse 59, their witnesses did not agree. Neither so did their witnesses agree. They have to find those who will tell lies because they are not telling the truth. There's no wonder their story doesn't match up. They're lying. Just so you know, it's always harder to agree on a consistent lie than it is to tell the simple truth. According to the law, the charge of blasphemy had to be confirmed by two or three witnesses. It had to be confirmed in full by two or three witnesses. And what we're seeing here is that this is not the case. Those who are responsible for the truth are in fact ignoring the truth. And even worse than that, they are misconstruing the truth. They're twisting the truth. They're perverting the truth. Look at verse 57. Those witnesses that arose, they bear false witness against him. And here's what they said, verse 58. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And within three days, I will build another made without hands. In other words, these false witnesses who are bringing false charges against Jesus are taking the words of Jesus out of context and they're twisting them and they're using them against him. You can go all the way back to Mark chapter 13 and you can see this for yourself, that when Jesus said this, destroy the temple and I will build it back in three days. And Mark explains he was not talking of the temple itself, but he was talking of his own body. He was speaking of his own self. He was making a prophetic statement saying, you're going to put me to death on the cross. You're going to put me to death here in this life, but I am going to build it back. I'm going to raise it up. I'm going to resurrect from the grave three days after this body is destroyed. But notice here, they are not interested in taking Jesus' words in context. They are taking Jesus' words and twisting them out of context for their own benefit. Now that, that's crucial for us to understand. Because, quite frankly, we can be guilty of the very same thing. And this, what they're doing, according to the law in Leviticus, is called slander. 
They're using Jesus' words in a way that Jesus did not mean the words he said. This is important for us to recognize. That you and I are guilty of false witness. We're guilty of slander. When we use someone else's words, repeat the things that they said, only we are giving their words a different meaning than the way in which they used those words. Even if we are using their exact words, it is still dishonest, it is still slander, and it is still a sin in the eyes of the Lord. We're guilty of this, are we not? It's very possible to take what someone said and to give it a different meaning. Let's do it like this. Someone could come up to you this morning and say something to you like, hey, you have changed. Now, context matters, doesn't it? If someone comes up to you and you've been trying to lose weight and you got a haircut and you have a new hairstyle and you got some new glasses and you're wearing new clothes and you're trying to make present yourself to be a new person and someone comes up to you and goes, hey, you've changed. You go, well, thank you very much. I'm glad you noticed. I've been working hard watching what I eat. But you could also hear the same phrase, hey, you've changed. And you could hear it negatively. You can take the same phrase, pull it out of context, twist it, give it meaning that it did not have. And guess what the Bible says? You and I are guilty of in doing that. You and I are guilty of false witness. We're guilty of slander. We're no different than these witnesses here. And that's what they're doing. They're taking Jesus' words, they're twisting them, and they're using them in a way that Jesus did not, in fact, deliver them. Now, I need you to notice this on this point also, and that is this. You need to recognize this is the religious group that are doing this. So this is not, this is not Pilate. This is not the pagan. This is not the Gentile. These are individuals who are committed to the truth more than anyone else, or, or so they project themselves to be. Never forget that it was religious people who were taking the words of Jesus out of context, twisting them and giving them a meaning that they did not have. A false witness will find a way to lie, no matter the facts. A false witness will find a way to lie, no matter the facts. Let's just pull the car over here for a second. Let's just talk about this. Are you a false witness? Take people's words, twist them, use them for your own advantage. Give those words a meaning that you know they did not have. Are you guilty of the very same thing that these religious people were guilty of? We got to look for a reason. We got to look for a reason to be mad. We got to look for a reason. We got to look for a reason to put him to death. We're beginning with the end. I already know the conclusion. The conclusion is we're going to put him to death. Now we just got to find a way to get there. Be a false your false witness who will find a way to lie regardless of the facts. 
Number two, there's a, there's a second person here, though, and I need you to notice that there's a true witness. There's a false witness in this story, but there's a true witness. And the true witness will always tell the truth, no matter the consequences. The true witness will always tell the truth, no matter the consequences. Look at verse 60. That's where the story is picking up. So the trial is not going according to plan. The witnesses are false. They're lying. They aren't telling the truth. They're taking Jesus' words and they're using them in a way that Jesus himself did not deliver those words. They were, they were slandering him. And the case is unraveling. So the high priest, whose name is Caiaphas, steps up and steps in. Notice verse 60. The high priest stood up in the midst and he asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? Now, you need to know that many people had already made up their minds concerning Jesus. They already decided, Jesus is guilty. We've just got to figure out the, the path to make the charge stick. And so they become angry when Jesus does not respond to them in the way in which they thought he should. And so notice Caiaphas charges Jesus. Are you going to answer nothing? Do you have nothing to say about what these witnesses are saying about you? Now, just so you know, why should Jesus answer the charge? They're telling lies. They're not, they're not treating Jesus with integrity. They are not interested in the truth. They can find no one who will levy an honest charge, and they've had to make up all these other charges. So why should Jesus answer a lie? He shouldn't. And he doesn't. In fact, the Bible says Jesus remains silent. Notice verse 61. But he held his peace and answered nothing. He answered nothing. He remains completely silent. Why? Because he knows, and the high priest knows, and the council knows, and the false witnesses know that this entire thing is a charade. It's a game. It's a game where evil intentions are playing themselves out. And he answers not a word. And in not answering their charges, he fulfills a prophecy given by Isaiah in chapter 53. Like a sheep before its shearers is dumb, is silent, so he openeth not his mouth. Doesn't say a word. He has nothing to say against the lies that were being said about him. It's not just a fulfillment of the prophecy. I need you to understand a second. It's also a fulfillment of Jesus standing in our place. It's also a fulfillment of Jesus standing in our place. You remember when we did our Romans study, Romans chapter 3. Paul writes that we know that whatsoever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and that the whole world will be made accountable to God. In other words, what Paul is saying is, the reason why we have the law of God is because the law of God takes away every possible excuse that we might want to offer for justification for why we disobeyed the law of God. 
Well, I got angry there because they did this. And I said that because they went there. And I acted in this way because she did this and he did that. And we want to serve up these justifications. We want to offer these kind of excuses for why we disobeyed the law of God. But what Paul says is, no, 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 no. You, you forget the law of God will hold everyone accountable so that your mouth and my mouth, it will be stopped. It will be Silent. We will not have excuses when we stand in front of the Lord. Everyone imagines that when they get to God and they stand in front of God, that they're going to have all kinds of questions for God to answer. But that is not the case. Isaiah may be the godliest man of his day, when he had the vision where he came into the presence of God, the Bible says that Isaiah fell on his face, refused to lift his eyes, and simply cried, woe is me, I'm undone. Literally, woe is me, I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. And he covered his mouth, the Bible says. Jesus stands as a representation in our place because Jesus in this trial is taking the sin of the world upon himself. Phillips in his commentary says it like this, he assumed the guilt of the world's sin and guilt makes a man's mouth stop. He has nothing to say. Because there is nothing to say for guilty men before a holy God. And you think about it for a moment. There are some things that stick with us through our lives. And sometimes people have a reason to accuse us of something. Sometimes we've handled ourselves in a way, we've used our words in a way, we've had certain actions in a way, where someone has reason to accuse us, reason to find fault in us, and we have nothing to say in return to that, because we're guilty of what they accuse us of. But Jesus, Jesus had plenty of evidence that he could have offered Jesus had plenty of things he could have cited to offer for his own defense. Do you remember what he told the disciples? John the Baptist was locked up in prison. John the Baptist started doubting that Jesus was who he said he was. So Jesus gives the disciples a promise to give to John. And they say, send John this explanation. Tell John, the lame walk, the blind see, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached unto them. Do not be offended because of me. Jesus could have offered all kinds of evidence on his behalf, and yet he said nothing. It's a lesson to us, is it not? 
It's a lesson to us for how we should react when we are accused, when we're lied about, when we're tempted to run to our own defense. How do you, how do you handle it when someone lies about you? When someone slanders you? When someone accuses you? When someone takes maybe even your very words but gives them a meaning that they didn't have and twists them for their own advantage. When people accuse you of blatant untruths, they've decided ahead of time, this is what you're guilty of and I'm just waiting to find a path to make the charge stick. Well, here's how Jesus handled it. Sometimes when you go through a season like this, we say things like, well, you just, you just got to take it on the chin. Just be tough and take it on the chin. But Jesus doesn't just take it on the chin. Jesus commits all of those wrongs that were done to him. He commits them to his heavenly father who judges all things righteously. There's a passage and we'll get to it next week where Jesus is standing in front of Pilate and Pilate says to Jesus do you not know that I have the power to take your life from you or to give life to you do you not know who you're standing in front of I am the one who has all the say and Jesus responds to Pilate by saying you would have no power at all except it was given to you by God, my Father. Jesus doesn't just stand and take it on the chin. Jesus takes the charges that are unjustly and illegally and wrongly and slanderously being laid on him and he commits them to his father, to God, who will judge all things perfectly in his own time. And that's the lesson. That's the lesson for you and for me. How do we respond to the circumstances of our lives? And watch, it shows itself in two different ways, in Caiaphas and in Jesus Christ. So Caiaphas here, he isn't getting his way. He knows he's found out the holy eyes of Jesus Christ are burning right through his heart. Jesus is a discerner of the thoughts and the intent of the mind and the heart. Jesus sees straight through what Caiaphas is trying to do. And so what does Caiaphas become? He becomes angry. He becomes explosive. He becomes all emotional. He's just thrown every which way. Notice what happens. It doesn't go his way, so what does he do? Uh, he rinses his clothes in verse 63. Literally, he rips his clothes off of him. He yells out, what up? We don't even need these witnesses anymore. You heard what he just said? They begin to spit on him, verse 65. They cover his face with a bag. They buffet him. They slap him. They hit him. The servants strike him. 
The other Gospels record that they punch him in the face one at a time and they say to him, tell us then, if you are the Christ, who is it that just hit you? Caiaphas, explosive, angry, temperamental, Jesus, resolved 